microphone with batteries going out. Well, if not, you fire me. It is so good to see almost everyone here, and by that I mean I know there are a few people who cannot be with us. But for those who are here, I'm so glad and uh, glad to be able to see you. For those who are watching um, online, it is, it is good to be with you, at least in this way. I know there are many that uh, the situation and circumstances prevents us from being together, and so we want to, to send you greetings as well, especially to Miss Sylvia, and so uh, I'm so thankful for you to be listening this morning. It's good to see each and everyone here. Um, tell you a little bit about us. We've been gone about one year. And so it was the middle of July last year whenever we, um, I think, were last worship of the congregation here. It's been an eventful year, divided into many parts. The most recent part, mostly stuck in our apartment with me teaching online and um, going nowhere. Almost everyone knows what that is, is like, the quarantine. I have a PowerPoint can we make it? Okay, we can make it go. Wonderful. I want to say thank you uh, to this congregation. We're so thankful for you, for the financial support and opportunities that you have given us, for the good hospitality that um, we have received since we've been in town. Um, coffee, cobbler, queso, brisket. I mean, just about things you can't get on the other side of the world. And so we're so thankful for you and for... Um, for your kindness, uh, your generosity, your friendship. Um, to answer a, a couple of questions as far as our, our family goes, uh, we do accept hugs, um, and, and we take the consequences that come with those. And so if you don't, that's fine. But uh, if you want to hug us, uh, we'll, we'll hug you back. We do accept handshakes, fist bumps, elbow taps, high fives, um, and, and pats on the back. And so any of these things are acceptable, uh, at least right now. We are in the country and in the state of Texas for about seven and a half weeks. We had planned to be here on furlough to see friends and family, to um, report to supporting congregations, and also to be here for some dear friends' weddings, at least one wedding that we were then later uninvited from. And so, <laughs> Lord willing, we will be heading back in um, August, the first week of August, to Singapore and continue the work there. By that time, um, hopefully, things will be a little bit better and we will be issued a 14-day stay-at-home notice. But as things are trending right now in the U.S., we will almost certainly be on government-mandated and observed quarantine. Uh, thankfully, it will not be in prison. It will be in a, in a hotel, most likely, because tourism is, of course, dipping. And so we ask that you keep us in your prayers during that time, but also in the time uh, that we spend here traveling the state of Texas. And so we've been in town, for, like I said, for about three and a half, four weeks, and we're in town for about three and a half or four more weeks. I want you, to, if you would, to take out your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. I'm going to start. I put a timer on myself, and then I didn't start it. 55 minutes? All right. And we want to start just by simply asking this question this morning. Have you ever been distracted? The answer is easy, right? I, I think I can probably distract everyone. I was 
uh, getting out my notes this morning. I do occasionally use them, Jacob. I was getting out my notes this morning and found out my iPad was dead. I had not charged my notes. And so I have my notes on my phone, but I can't read as well as the last time I was in the pulpit. And so uh, if, if I keep checking my phone, it, it really is. It's notes and not text messages. And if any of you text me during, <laughs> during worship, you see, there are things that can distract us. And most of those things are meaningless, and they're very small distractions. Maybe it's an acute, disruptive child sitting in front of you, and they catch your attention during worship. Maybe, maybe it is a buzzing in your pocket. Maybe it is at work. There are things that pull your attention away. We understand distraction. I'm not going to say distraction is necessarily bad, but there is a time and there is something that we should not or even cannot be distracted from. And if you followed along in the scripture reading this morning or you've read the screen behind me even now, you know that there is a time when distraction can create a separation between us and God. You see, distraction can cause division and keep us from being committed to the thing which we are pledged to do as Christians, as disciples as children of God, and that is our consideration this morning. It's not just some type of, of distraction that maybe catches our eye during worship or even enters into our mind during Bible study. There's a different time and place to discuss those things. But I want to talk to you this morning about distraction from discipleship, the thing which we are pledged on this earth to do, to follow Jesus and become conformed to His image. In Luke 9, beginning in verse 57, how far can I wander from the pulpit and still be on YouTube? About this far. In Luke 9 and verse 57, we have three individuals and three conversations as, as Jesus is on the road. Now, he has been in Samaria, if you look at the preceding verses. And has made his way, according to Matthew 8 and verse 18, back almost certainly to the southern region of Galilee, around the south side of the Sea of Galilee. And there on the way, he meets these three individuals. And the first man he has a discussion with, and is very brief. And maybe Luke records all of the words of the conversation, maybe he does not. But he is a, according to Matthew 8, a scribe. Then there is a second man in verses 59 and 60 that he's going to discuss who is a disciple, one who is becoming conformed to the image of his master. And then there is a third man who is just simply called another, another man. And each one of these men must overcome something in order to see and to, to be what God wants them to see and what God wants them to be. In fact, each one of these men is in some way or somehow distracted. And so, while there may be some, some details that confuse us, is Jesus forbidding going to funerals? Is Jesus forget, forbidding saying goodbye to parents? There, there may be some details that confuse us. As you read this text, the, the, main, the main point of the message should be clear. Your priorities matter. And they must always be placed upon the master and not upon anyone or anything else. And so let's set the stage for just a moment. In Luke chapter 9, we have the beginning of Jesus' travel narrative. And so in verse 51, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And if you're reading in Mark's account, the things that take place between Mark chapter 9 and verse 50 and Mark chapter 
purposes. I just needed a drink. But in Luke, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem in verse 51 of chapter 9, and he doesn't get there for 10 chapters. And he doesn't take the most direct route to go to Jerusalem. But setting his face to go to Jerusalem is not setting his face to go to Target, where you just simply take the easiest way that that you might get there. Setting his face to go to to Jerusalem is to encounter those things that he had described to his disciples. Look back at Luke chapter 9 and verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed the third day, rise again. Where would that take place? In Jerusalem. When Jesus set his face in Luke 9 and verse 51 to Jerusalem, he was not taking the most geographically efficient route to Jerusalem. He was finishing his earthly ministry. The time he had spent between Galilee, as we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and and in Jerusalem and Judea, as we see in John, the time he had spent in those three years or so on earth are now coming to an end. Not immediately. There's still a number of things that Jesus will accomplish before he says it is accomplished or it is finished. But that is our context here in Luke chapter 9. And if we're going to study this passage uh, thoroughly, we would certainly give attention to the parallel account in Matthew 19. And as most of us know, when we read two accounts of Jesus' life on earth or his teaching or his ministry, one maybe from Matthew and one from Luke, we might find some different, at least as we see them, details. We need to remember that whenever we see additional details, it does not mean there is a contradiction in Scripture. For instance, if I was at the store and and you encountered me and, and you said, oh, hey, why did you come to the store? And I said, I came to get eggs. And you looked into my cart and you saw eggs, bread, and ham. Brisket. That's where my mind's going, right? (laughs) It needs to be cooked. You saw eggs, bread, and ham. And you said, you're a liar. You only said you came to the store to get eggs. Now, the reason I only told you eggs was because you were going to bake me a cake later. That's the only thing you needed to know. You did not need to know I also wanted the sandwich. You see, there are different times that we explain different things to different people. There's no lie there. There's no deception there. But whenever we take the entirety of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get a complete picture as God would have us to have, to hold, to read, to study. We get a complete picture that we are able to see. And so Matthew gives us some some details, even though he does not divulge as much as Luke. One of those is the setting near Galilee. The other one is the, um, the identity of the first two individuals, the first one being a scribe, the second one being a disciple. And so if we're going to study this passage completely, we're going to at least look through and see those things. But if we're going to study the passage, we're going to spend some time in the text. And from this text, I would like us to see three points. Three points about commitment, or about having divided allegiance, or three points about distracted discipleship. Whatever you want to to say or to see, But if you're going to be a committed disciple, if you're going to be an undistracted, I don't think that's a word, if you're going to be a not distracted disciple, you're going to go with this. Number one, you'll see is in our first two verses, the first conversation that takes place, verses 57 and 58. A a committed disciple will be one who forgets 
comfort. A committed disciple, verses 59 and 60, will be one who is willing to forsake his or her own culture. And then as we close out the text in verses 60 and 61, a committed disciple is one who is willing to forego family. But that doesn't say we've we got to go companionship because we want to keep the consistency there. They will be willing to forego companionship. So let's look at verses 57 and 58 together. Verses 57 and 58 together. In Luke chapter 9, let's look at the first interaction with one who Matthew identifies as a scribe. As they went on the way, Jesus has set his, his face towards Jerusalem. He's been to Samaria. He's back up to Galilee. He's around the, the border of the sea. As they set there, as they went on their way, a certain man said unto him, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Now that right there is, is a, a couple of things that we want to see. The first is that this is no doubt a noteworthy man. He's a scribe. Most of the scribes would have been centered around Jerusalem, at least during this time. But for some reason, this man has made his way into or out of Palestine and into Galilee. And there we have a scribe, likely one who was or had been a leader of the local synagogue. Maybe he had received a distinctive title in Jerusalem. But whatever the case may be, this is a man who could be commonly identified as a religious leader of the day. He's a man who had studied the scriptures, who had transcribed them, who was familiar with the oral law. He likely taught. Maybe in Jerusalem to multitudes, maybe in Galilee to, to small groups, maybe to children, as would later be the case 100 or 200 years later in this area. But this man would have been an asset, wouldn't he? Think about the local church. And he has a noble mind. He says, I will follow thee. Think of a great, what, what else could he have said that would have been greater than this? That there's maybe no greater commitment to be expressed with words than this one. I will follow you. Where? Anywhere. Now you take a person like this. And that's one that we want to sign up, right? We want to put him on a committee. We want to get him in the classroom. We want to make sure that, that we would have his membership here. And not somewhere else. He's the one that we would say you're an answer to our prayer. Thank you. Come on. But the words of Jesus strike us. Because, maybe because they're not exactly how we would answer. But Jesus gives him a, a needed message. Are you amazed by Jesus' transparency when you look through the gospel accounts? When you see the words that he speaks, the things which he says? Jesus answered and said unto him, The foxes have holes. Now a foxhole is never luxurious. I've never been deeper than an arm's length inside a foxhole. But I've been in a coyote den. But they're not a... They're not a place to spend a lot of time. They were empty at the time. It wasn't, okay. It's not a luxurious place, but at least it's somewhere to call home. The birds have nests. Now, I don't know if you've seen a bird nest. Some of them are intricate, but if you've ever tried to set in one, you probably can't. It's home. It's homely. It's a place to raise children. It's a place of safety from predators. It's a place to provide food, but it's nothing extravagant in any way. But don't we love the stability and comfort of home? Even if our home is smaller than we wished it were. Or if it's a little dingier than we wished it were. Or the yard's a little more overgrown than we wished our husband kept it. We have an apartment now, so I can say that. We live on the 12th floor. 1,241 square feet. 
I think. I don't actually know the exact number, but it sounds more authoritative if I give you that number. 1,241 square feet. For six weeks, we lived, six of us, 1,241 square feet. It's home, though. It's safe. It's comfortable. It's stable. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. It's likely that Jesus did not spend 33 years homeless. Almost certainly. He probably lived somewhere in that time. Maybe it was in Nazareth where he was from. Very good possibility. Maybe it was in Capernaum, which later became kind of this base for some of his Galilean ministry. But after he set his face to Jerusalem, our Savior was homeless. He was, if you will, on a mission. Now, I know that's not fair because he was on a mission his whole life. But he had left those things behind. And so as we think about this text and its application to us, are we willing to forget, for discipleship, comfort? Now, we are not asking anyone here to become homeless. That, that's, not, that's not the point. And if you were to take that from this text, you would be missing what Jesus has to say. But do you realize there are comforts and conveniences that keep us from being committed as we should to the cause of Christ? If you don't see that, then there's probably something in your life that is committing or keeping you from that type of commitment. What might those comforts be? Well, it might be something like opening our home. You know, that's, it's uncomfortable to have people in your home. It can be. I know some people are great at it, but some of us aren't. It's uncomfortable to do these things. It's uncomfortable to sit down and study the gospel with someone, but that's the only way the gospel will be transmitted from one generation to the next or one person to the next. The Holy Spirit won't do it. The angelic being won't do it. A voice from heaven won't do it. A still small voice won't do it. A whisper at the end of the bed won't do it. Only the Christian will do it. There's some uncomfortable things. And if you read this text and you go, well, I know Jesus doesn't want me to be homeless, so I'm okay. You've missed the point. You've read over the passage, you've done good, you've checked the box, but you've missed the point, and so have I. If we're willing to let comfort and convenience stand between us, the feeling of stability to stand between us and God, then we are a distracted disciple. Now, when I did the PowerPoint, these things kind of popped in like one at a time, and whenever I sent them, In, in verses uh, 59 and 60, there's a second conversation that takes place. Matthew identifies this as a disciple. Someone who has at least begun to follow Jesus. Maybe he has not completely committed himself in the way that we would think, but he is at least among those who are learners. And Jesus gives him a direct call. He says, follow me. Now, if you've been reading the book of Luke, that sounds very much like Luke 5, verse 10. Because in Luke 5, verse 10, Jesus reached out, not with his hands, but with his voice, to those who would become the twelve and said something very similar, follow me. And do you remember what happened with Peter, Andrew, and James, and John? They left their fishing boats on the seashore, and they came and followed Jesus, Luke 5, verse 11, so that he would make them fishers of men. That's, that's the context that we have, the greater context of this call, follow me. But then you see that our, our conversant, our disciple, had a divided cause. 
He was willing to follow Jesus, but he needed to do something else. In his mind, he needed to do something else first. Suffer me first to bury my father. Now, there are a number of reasons why this individual might have wanted to bury his father. And I think we do the text a disservice if we don't understand something about the background of the text. So there are some have said, I don't even think I can read what order I put them in, so you, if I'm out of order, I'm sorry. There are some who have said that this man had just lost his father and needed to bury him, but wanted to go through the customary 30 days, sometimes 90, 30 days of mourning. So in other words, he's saying, yes, I will follow you, but let me grieve first. Give me, give me a few days. That's all I need. Give me a little, a little time, and then I'll be able and willing to follow Jesus. That, that's possible. It's also possible this man's father was nigh unto death, that he was sick. And what he's saying is not that my dad is dead and I'm, I'm having a funeral tomorrow. Can I go? What he's saying is I need to take care of my elderly parent. And as they die, I need to make the arrangements that they're. I need, I need just a few weeks. That's all. And after a few weeks, I'll be ready and willing to commit myself totally to the cause. That's possible. It's also possible, and I think this seems kind of morbid to us, but we do understand it. That what he's saying is my dad is old and will eventually die, and then I'll be able to come. And so maybe he's not asking for a, a few days or weeks or months. Maybe he's actually asking for a few years. You know, I have a family responsibility, and as soon as that responsibility is taken care of, then I will be able to give myself to God. There's two things that we need to consider before we consider two more things. I don't list them because then they become points. Number one, there are family commitments which the scriptures dictate as being part of our responsibility to God. Okay? Things like if there's a widow in our family, we need to take care of her. Not to allow her to be dependent on the church, certainly not to be dependent on the government. That's, that's biblical teaching. If there are children in our home, we need to provide for them the things necessary to life. Husband providing for wife, wife providing things necessary for the husband. There is a family provision to be given. If you want to study this more, you can read the entire book of Proverbs. Or you can also read Ephesians 5, 22-33. In 1 Timothy chapter 5. This gives you some idea. But if you do not provide for your own, you're worse off than those who do not believe. The pagans. Okay. That's number one. Number two. Second point before we get to two more. You can use family responsibility as an excuse to not do what God told you to do. And in fact, this was present in the first century. When there were those Pharisees who maybe did but also taught that if you dedicated a gift to God, you by no means had responsibility to your parents. That looks something like this. For background, you have Mark 7 and Matthew 15. But if, you, if you're supposed to give a tithe to God, and if God weren't in your life, you would have helped your parents, then you're okay. That's fine. You can excuse your family commitment in order to serve God. That, that's what they taught, and it was false teaching. Jesus is teaching neither of these two things. He's not teaching contradictory to the clear Bible teaching of family responsibilities. He's not. 
And he's not teaching um, that, that you can excuse responsibilities and use religion or God as an excuse to do these things. That's simply not the case. He is facing an attitude that's saying, a few more days, a few more weeks, a few more months, a few more years, and then I will be committed to your cause. But I actually think there's something else. That's where we want to talk about two more things underlying the text. In Galilee, you have a convergence of three cultures, of three mindsets, of three laws, if you will. There is the Greek and Roman, the Greco-Roman culture, and there is the Jewish culture. I want you to consider two mindsets that existed in the first century, especially that existed even in Roman Galilee or Roman Syro-Palestine. Number one, the idea that within the Roman mind, that whenever the oldest male died, the next male took over as the head of the family, the entire family. And so what you have is an unwritten law, a cultural norm, an honor that if my father were to die and I were the oldest male living, I would then have all responsibilities within my family. Okay, that's one. One of those would be tending to the burial of, of my family. We may have here a man who is waiting to be head of his house. And maybe something that, that is, is worth considering. But there is a second mindset that is, is more persuasive uh, and, and is certainly more pervasive. But, but it would have flooded the Jewish mind. And that is the, the religious teaching of this day. The religious teaching of this day in the Jewish culture had its roots in the Old Testament, but it sprang forth into the thoughts and minds of men, and it was this. If you do not bury your family, you are not serving God appropriately. Now that's not necessarily Levitical law. But the idea that, um, you know, Burying one's loved one is akin to holiness or purity. This is what the, the contemporary writings say, and no doubt the religious teachers spewed. That the greatest act of service to God was the burial of a loved one. And so in front of this man's face stood the Messiah of God, promised of old, there in the flesh, ready to die for the, for the will of God and the souls of men. And instead, he allowed the the culture of that day. To cause him to need more time, whether, whether hours or days or weeks or months or years, whenever you and I all know, especially this far removed, that he should have followed the Savior right away. Now I realize that that may not exactly be the application today. I understand that. And I understand that if someone were to use this text and say, you should never go to a funeral, they would have a hard time taking Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 2 and balancing those two things out. But there is a cultural component that you and I must recognize that can often distract us and keep us from following the one that we should. We're seeing those cultural components coming out in, in different states and different political parties and organizations and we begin to follow and think and to feel. And while there not, might not be a sin in any of those, it can keep us from the first thing, the most important thing. You see, there's no sin in burying your loved one. But if it stands between you and God, because culture tells you to, we can't. We won't. At least we shouldn't. And then number three, I'll 
Six more points. All right. Verses 61 and 62. Another. Maybe, maybe we have a, a disciple here as well. Someone who has been on the outskirts of following Jesus. Who, who is desirous of, of maybe continuing this relationship. But we're going to see that Jesus calls him to service that is greater. That is stronger. That is more. And so Jesus says in Luke 9 verse 61. As another one says, I will follow thee, Lord. He says, first, allow me to bid farewell to those who are in my house. And so Jesus has told one man to let the dead bury their own dead. Maybe this, this individual heard that, and now he wants to follow Christ. But he wants to do it on his own terms, right? And so here you see the, this cautious promise. I will follow you in just a little bit. All right. How long would it take to, to um, you know, go and bid farewell if they're close by, maybe a few hours, right? They're further away, maybe a few days. Some have suggested this man was going home to, to ask for permission from his parents when obviously he was of an age to make uh, decisions for himself. I think there's something else going on here as well. And as you look through this text, I want you to see, is there a, is there a cross-reference in your Bible? Does anyone even use a, a hard cover Bible anymore? It, or soft cover? I guess a real? The other one's a real Bible. What am I saying? Non-digital. Help me out. Someone give me a word. A book. Does anyone use a book? Alright. Is there a cross-reference to 2 Timothy 2.19 there? Because I think this man is, is looking for a calculated precedent. I think he's looking for a scriptural reason to not follow Jesus. And so I think he is looking at what he had been taught, likely in the synagogue or his home, about Elisha's commitment to God in 2 Kings 19, beginning in verse 19. Now, there is no way that I can read that in the back. All right, I'll do it this way. So he, that is Elijah, this is after um, Elijah had sought help from God. He had, he had felt sorry for himself. God had told him that, that uh, he was not the only one living that served him. God gives him a mentee. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th, the final yoke, oxen number 23 and 24. 1 through 22 were resident. All right? Uh, Elijah passed over to him, and he cast his mantle, and Elijah was well known for his mantle, right, Elijah? And so Elijah cast his mantle upon Elisha, and he left the oxen, and he ran, that is, Elisha ran after Elijah, and said, let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and mother, bid them farewell, and then I will follow thee. You see, if Jesus wasn't going to allow a man to bury his father, whatever that meant culturally, and I think there's more there, surely, if I use Elisha, Surely there's a scriptural precedent for putting off Jesus. And he said unto him, go back again, for what have I done unto thee? And so Elijah, I think, says something along the lines of, whatever, it's your call. You choose, you do you, right? And so there is a commission and a call, but Elijah, Elijah seems very nonchalant in this. I am not going to make you go, but here's my man. Look at verse 21. He... Elisha 
Return from following him, Elijah. If you're with us on YouTube, I'm using the, the PowerPoint. He took the yoke of oxen and he slew them. He boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, that's his farming tools, and he gave them unto the people and they did eat. And he arose and went after Elijah and he ministered unto him. And you know that he was with him for the remainder of 1 Kings. In 2 Kings, Elijah was, Elijah was taken away. Elijah's there. He's going to be the prophet of the people of the northern tribes. And so, as we think about this, in verse 62, Jesus gives a clear proverb that relates back to the very thing that he was looking for an excuse in. You see, he sought, it seems to me, this man, a disciple, one who was willing and ready almost to commit sought a scriptural precedent for putting off his duty to God. And if you don't think that exists today, then once again, we need to reflect on the things that are around us and maybe reflect on our own lives. Jesus said, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Think then, think then about 1 Kings 19, verses, 20, uh, verses 19 through 21. You see, Elisha was... Plowing. And so when Jesus says, no man having put his hand to the plow, don't think that was just out of the blue. Jesus is aware of what's going on. He's knowledgeable. Maybe this man unwittingly sought scriptural precedent for saying or, or bidding his family goodbye. But Jesus answers as the master teacher would and did. And he points back to what Elisha did. He took the yoke of oxen, 12 yoke, 24 minimum. 24 oxen, and he killed them. You see, when Peter and Andrew and James and John left their fishing boats, you know what they did? They left them by the side of the sea. Do you know that after the resurrection, they, they were back in those boats? Now, I'm not saying they don't consider this significant. Elisha could never go back to farming again. And if he did, the only way he could plow was with his two hands. Because his oxen were dead, killed, and distributed amongst the people, which is an act of generosity sermon for another day. And those things that were used to yoke them together, and those things that were used to plow, the, the wooden instruments, they were the wood for the fire. You see, there was no going back. I wonder if Jesus is saying, if you commit like Elisha, it's not a matter about telling your father or mother goodbye. You see, the kind of commitment that Jesus was looking for was the kind of commitment that would take everything and would give it up for the cause of Christ. That's scary. It's scary to have someone say, you must love me more than you love father or mother, sister or brother, children, your spouse. Or even your own life. That's scary. But that's the kind of commitment that we've pledged in Jesus Christ. What did Elijah do? He took his hand off the plow. And he put his hand on the plow. And you could not for the next however many years of his life. Stop him. Prohibit him. Keep him. Or discourage him from doing the work of God. It was good that the disciples left their boats by the sea, but can we get discipleship that burns the plow? 
people of God. I think I've heard that sermon before. You see, this was not about forbidding someone to go to their home and kiss their father and mother. That's not what it's about. Before I go to church, I can't say goodbye to mom and dad. You see, if you read over that text, you say, well, I know Jesus isn't talking about that. But you never ask the question, what is he talking about? You've missed it. Don't do that. Don't that do, don't do that to don't do that to yourself. Don't do that to your faith. And don't do that to the Savior. This is about us being willing to put the Son of Man first. To put the preaching of the kingdom of God first. For these things to be the most important things in our life. That's three points, and now we have to make application. Just three simple points of application. And then the lesson is this. Because we don't want to leave the text in the text. You see, if we leave the text in the text, then it never becomes ours. And if we say, well, I know God doesn't want me to go, uh, God doesn't want me to go to funerals, so I don't have to, you've missed it. I know this isn't about, you've missed it. What is the application to us today? As we walk out of this building, unhallowed walls, as we walk out of this building, what, what am I called to do? What are you called to do? What is the life now that we must live? I'm going to flip if I'm not careful. You see, it's not about God calling me to be homeless. Because if we're homeless and yet that use of the word was building gone, that was a house, at least in the early church in the first century. That's not what it's about. You see, that call to homelessness is about a call of putting God above your stability, your convenience, and your comfort. Mine as well. And maybe that's in the case of hospitality, like we talked about. If instead of looking over this text and saying, you know, I know God doesn't want me to be homeless, what if we said this? The Son of Man may not have wherewith to lay his head, but if he were in San Marcos, he'd have my house. That may be the case. And, and the truth is, I know there are more people here than, than there are Jesuses who would offer that home. And we've seen that, we've felt that, we've experienced it. But that's the case of Hebrews 13, too. Some people entertain angels unaware. Hospitality is something that is necessary in Christianity, expected amongst the brotherhood. That's what it's about. And so when we see the application of the text and we say, well, it's not that Jesus wants me to be homeless, it's something else. What is the something else? It may be giving up, giving up the convenience so that you can serve in a better way. Number two, it's not about funeral, it's about first. Where do we put our priorities? You see, if I were the man on the side of the road who I said, I will follow you, that's where we have to put ourselves in the text. Or if Jesus said, follow me, would I want a few more days, hours even? I'm willing and ready in a minute. I've talked to some of you before, but I think that was whenever I was baptized into Christ, it was put off because I just, I just needed a few more days. I just needed a few more hours. I know some of you, and I'll speak very collectively, some of us have done that with repentance. I know I need to change, but I just want to live this way a few more days. Just through next Saturday, because there's a big fill in the blank. You see, that's not undistracted, not a word. That's not committed discipleship. Because discipleship is that which we must put first. Not this world, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Once again, there, there really is scriptures on the screen. I'm sorry you can't see them. All right, uh, Luke, 2, Luke 6, 42, Matthew 6, 33. Um, Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
And then we come to the last one. And we think, well, you know, Jesus is just kind of crass. He doesn't want me to say goodbye to my family. What was the point? You see, it's not about pleasantries. That, that's not the point of the text. And if you look over this text and you say, I can't kiss my mom goodbye before I go to church, you miss the point. But I think sometimes we read over it and we go, well, I know that's not exactly what he says, but, but that's the next thing. What is the but? What is required of us? What is the something? And that's where we're at. You see, it's not about pleasantries, right? It's about where we're going to put our pursuit. Will it be the same pursuit of Jesus? You must know that I need to be about my father's business or in my father's house, depending on your translation, Luke 2.49. That when the end of the matter has been heard, that fear God and keep his commandments is the entirety or the all of man, Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. That our priorities are on heavenly things where we've set our mind, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Because this world is going away. Son of man coming again. Our lives nailed to the cross with Christ and so our old man crucified as well, Colossians 3 and verse 5. Those are the things that we are talking about this morning. You see, as we join Jesus on the road outside of Galilee, as he has set his face towards Jerusalem, he was not interested in uncommitted disciples because he had already planned and purposed to go, to suffer, to die with the knowledge that he would rise again. We have the blessing that these three men did not have. Because we live on this side of the cross. They only saw those things with the Savior in front of their face. And the text leads us to doubt whether any one of them followed. It seems that all of them may have remained distracted. But what the text leaves unanswered about those individuals, you and I do not have to leave unanswered about ourselves. The question this morning is, in regards to distracted discipleship, are you distracted not by... The preacher's goofiness regularly. I don't mean the guest preacher. Not by the preacher's goofiness. Not by the cute children. Not by the man in a mask and glove who handed me my cup. Because those things are distracting. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about your life. Is your focus somewhere it should not be? Are your priorities not where they should be? If that's the case, then maybe we need a reconsideration. Maybe we need to re-examine. Maybe we need to look at a little more, in a little more depth at the text and a little more depth at ourselves and there come to a, an understanding that through Jesus, through following Jesus, we can have a way back to God, reconciliation in the home with Him. There is a possibility that there are those visiting this morning who stand outside of the body of Christ, who are lost and dead in their, dead and lost in their sins and need to be brought back into a right fellowship through a personal faith that is a faith which they have themselves and then to follow the faith that is which revealed in the word of God to change your life and to be baptized into Christ but it's likely that many of us have already made that pledge we've already become what the world would look at and say that is a disciple and if we were talking in, in honesty to ourselves we would say yeah I'm a disciple so were some of these men what will we do with the pledge that we have? Will we give ourselves fully and completely to Christ? If we have not, then today is the day to make that right. If there is a need, I want you to fix that today between you and God.
Maybe we can help you. I have no idea what the protocol is, so I brought a mask just in case. I don't know if you come down. I don't know if you go back. I don't know if you raise your hand. But here's what I know. If you need help, there's people here that want to help you. And if there's anything that we can do to encourage you, make that known. During the invitation song is a great time. But if it needs to wait or you need to tap someone on the shoulder and walk out, that's fine too. Whatever your need may be, whatever your need may be, let us encourage you as together we stand and as we sing.